Well, for as long as there have been Christians, uh, there have been many misconceptions about what a Christian is. Many people have been confused about what it means to be a Christian. Even Christians are confused a lot of times about what it means to be a Christian. And that's not a new problem. That's been going on for 2,000 years. Did you know that in the first century, Christians had a reputation for being, of all things, cannibals? Yeah, those people that meet over there in that house feast every week on the body and blood of their Lord. They're cannibals. That's what was going through the streets in Jerusalem and around the world in the first century. We had a reputation also of being incestuous as Christians. They call each other brother and sister, and they will only marry each other. They will only marry their brothers and sisters. They're incestuous, those Christians. This is the sort of stuff that was being spread about us in the first century, and many people believed it and thought that's what a Christian was. Similar things happen today. You have probably heard all sorts of bad stereotypes about what Christians are. Everything from those people don't play cards and they force their wives and children to braid their hair and wear long skirts, or those people are so judgmental and hypocritical, or those people in that church over there are clinging to a moral code that oppresses minority groups, or all kinds of bad pictures of what it means to be a Christian out there. And those pictures are dangerous because they stir up prejudice and bigotry in the hearts of people toward Christians and even harden people toward the gospel that would save them. But those are actually less dangerous to us than some other sorts of false pictures of what a Christian is. There are some not so negative false pictures of what a Christian is that threaten us quite a lot. Like a Christian is a pretty good person who lives by the Bible's moral code and has found a pretty good life in the teachings of the Bible. It's a pretty common belief around here. If you try to follow the rules of the Bible, that makes you a Christian. But if you know the grace of Jesus Christ, you know that's not what makes you a Christian, is it? Or there are many here in Greenwood who would say that a Christian is a person who has at some point in their life responded to a sermon by, by raising their hand, uh, by going down an aisle, or by, one of the phrases is, asking Jesus into your heart. That that alone is enough to make you a Christian without saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, in the Bible, nobody ever goes down an aisle. Nobody ever raises their hand in response to a sermon. And, did you know this? No one asks Jesus into their heart in the whole Bible. None of those things make, many of us have done those things, and we still are Christians, but none of those things make you a Christian. And even to others, a Christian is somebody who is kind of the last holdout of Western ethics, trying to make sure that Western ethics don't fall to some of these new neo-Marxist ideas, holding on to the Judeo-Christian ethic and championing that cause in the political sphere. Well, we do believe in morals here, and we do believe that what has been built in the West has been good for a lot of people, though not perfect, but that isn't what makes us a Christian either. Now, those false pictures of Christianity are more dangerous to us because they don't sound quite so negative. And if we were to forget who we really are, we might leave our Lord and go instead to another picture of what it means to follow Jesus and say, yeah, I'm I'm a moral person who follows the Bible's teachings, and I guess that's what a Christian is. I guess that's what we do in our church. 
leaving our Lord for that picture. So those ones are more dangerous to us as believers. But here's the good news. Those false pictures of what it means to be a Christian are only dangerous to us if we forget who we really are. And that is what makes today's story so important. In today's story, we are going to learn what the core is of our identity. What does it really mean to be a Christian? We are going to read the story of how a man named Jacob was given a new name, Israel. And that name would go on to be the name of all of his descendants and even all of God's people and have great meaning for us as Christians and what it means to be followers of Jesus and what it means to be the people of God. If we can remember who we are, suddenly these lies about us don't matter very much. So let's dive in today to Genesis chapter 32. We did read this story last week in the middle of a surrounding story. Now we're just going to focus on it. Genesis 32, verse 22. That same night, he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name is shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask for my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The words of the Lord. In this mysterious story, Our Lord gives to his people our new identity. Now, this is one of the most mysterious stories in the whole Bible. I have been looking forward to the moment when we got to it for a long time. I love it for its mystery and for all of the questions that you're surely asking right now about what just happened. Now, we're going to walk out of here without all those questions answered, but what the story will do for it, what I think the Spirit wants to do through it, is share with us what is our identity, who are we as God's people. So this is then, again, the story of the moment where Jacob gets his new name, Israel. And thus it is the story of when the people of God in that day, Old Testament Israel, gained their name, Israel. Without this story, they would be the nation of Jacob, not the nation of Israel. 
And a lot of times when something like that happens, the meaning of the new name matters, but the story matters more. Uh, The name Israel is just a combination of the Hebrew word for strive and and God. So strive God is, is all that it means. So that alone isn't enough to tell us what that name means. But the story adds meaning to the name. I'll give you an example of this. For many people, the story behind their name means more even than the name itself. Uh, imagine, I don't think there's anyone here today with the last name Baker, so we'll just, we'll just pretend that our last name, your last name is, is Baker. And if that's your last name, you probably assume that somebody along the line in your lineage baked really good bread and made a really good living baking bread or cake or something and was probably the town baker and that's probably how you got the name Baker. But what if instead... Every night as a child, every Saturday night as a child, your father would sit you down with your brothers and sisters and say, children, our fathers were settlers in the Appalachian Mountains. And they built a wonderful village there with cultivated fields and they sent water to the area and a river ran through it. They flourished there until one year a mountain lion began haunting the region. The mountain lion would come in the night and would steal our children away and terrify us. And the mountain lion would come by day and take a man and a woman together and maul them. And everyone lived in terror of the mountain lion. We were afraid to go out into the fields and cultivate our fields because who knew when the mountain lion was going to come again? And so the fields went to weeds. The wheat was gone. We had no food. We were in deep distress until one night... Your great, 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 great grandfather was tending the fire pit. And it was a deep fire pit such that if you fell in, you could not get out. And he was throwing logs into it to give it fuel for the food. When from behind him, the mountain lion pounced on him. And in an instant, our father moved out of the way, put his hands up, and thrust the mountain lion into the fire to its demise. That night, the whole village feasted on baked lion. Your father is the baker. Okay, that's fun. The point is, If your last name is Baker, and that's the story of how you got the name Baker, that's going to change the way you look at the name Baker, isn't it? Our father slayed the mountain lion. In the same way, this story means much for Israel's national identity. They would look back and say, we gained the name Israel on this day when our father Jacob strove with God and somehow came out with his life delivered. Now, that matters for us because we may not be ethnically part of the nation of Israel today, but the Bible says that we are, in a sense, you might call it a new Israel, or in a sense, have inherited that spiritual identity as God's people. Many of the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, and in their rejection of him, Paul says, they were cut off of the promises of God. And likewise, Paul teaches that those of us who are not Jews but have faith in Jesus Christ were grafted into the promises of God. So in a sense, in a full sense, we are his people. The people of God are gathered here right now in the church receiving the promises of God and looking forward to inheriting them fully. 
That's why the Pharisees can confront Jesus and say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus can say to them, Jewish Pharisees, no, you don't. If Abraham were your father, you would believe in the one that God sent. And that is why Paul can write to us and say, actually write to the Romans and say that not all those of Israel are Israel, it's only children of the promise. It's those who have faith in Jesus that are Israel today. Or Peter can write to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he calls it, which is language, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, for Israel, right? The 12 tribes, a lot of you know what that is. The dispersion, that was the word they used for Jews scattered all across the world. And he would later say that they were a holy nation and a royal priesthood, a people for God's own choosing, all terms used for ancient Israel. Here's the catch, though. He wasn't writing to Jews. He was writing to Christians calling us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, the 12 tribes. So what that means for us then is that what Jacob is gaining here, this sense of identity as God's people, belongs to us now as Christians. So we're not just seeing the identity of Old Testament Israel, we're seeing our identity, who we are wrapped up in this very story. So you might ask then, okay, what, what is the story? What what happens? Well, the backstory is that Jacob is about to go meet his brother that he hasn't seen in 20 years. It didn't end well 20 years ago. Last thing his brother said to him is that he wanted to kill him, so he ran away. 20 years later, he's coming back. He knows that he is about to meet his brother in this land where he's going to cross the river and go into it. And his brother is bringing an army of 400 men with him. So it's really not looking good. He is scared of what is going to happen the next day. He knows his brother's about to pounce on him and he is going to be done when that happens because he doesn't have 400 men to defend himself. So he gets up in the middle of the night, nervous, can't sleep. And decides to wake everybody up and just press on ahead. I wonder if you've ever done that. My wife and I did that recently. Uh, in May, we took a trip out to the Grand Canyon, two days of driving. And we, the plan was, we're going to get up at either 5 or 6 o'clock, wake the kids up, get in the car, and drive 12 hours to get halfway there. Well, next thing you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And we're laying there in bed, looking in each other's eyes, going, we should just get up, get the kids up now. And go, right? We couldn't sleep. We were so excited. So we got up, got the kids up at three in the morning, packed them in the van. They fell back asleep and on the road we were. Maybe you've done the same thing. You're so excited about the journey. You just can't wait. You get up and go. Well, he does that, except it's not because he can't wait. It's because he's scared. He knows tomorrow he's going to have to fight with his brother. So he gets up, sends everybody across. It's unclear at what point he crosses, or maybe he goes back and forth, but at the end of it, there he is on the shore of the Jabbok River with none of his people, they've all gone ahead, none of his possessions, they've all gone ahead. He entered this land with just his staff, and now he's leaving with just this staff. That river carves a lot of canyons in the area, and so you can imagine it, if you've ever been to the Colorado River out west, it's a lot like that, carving all those canyons in there. You can imagine those western beautiful canyons all around him, water that's probably shallow, and they could afford to cross it if they want to, and there he is by himself. And out of nowhere, one of the most surprising plot twists in the Bible comes. A mysterious man just, bam, wrestles him. 
Where did this guy come from? No time to ask questions. They are wrestling. They are on the ground. They seem to be an even match for each other. Jacob is a very strong man. He moved that whole stone all by himself. It usually took three shepherds to move. He did other feats of strength in his life. And these two are an even match for each other. For the rest of the night, they're just splashing around there on the shore, one on top of the other, and then they flip back over and back over again, twisted up, adrenaline going on and on and on until finally the man realizes we're an even match. I'm not going to beat him on my physical strength alone. And so he touches Jacob's hip. And that touch, it's not a strike. It's not a kick. It's just a touch. That throws Jacob's hip out of socket. Now there's a hint there as to what's going on. This man evidently has some supernatural power that he's holding back. All he had to do was touch Jacob's hip. He knocks it right out of socket. So here's a man then that in a physical body is an even match for Jacob, but also seems to have some kind of supernatural power that he is holding back and not quite accessing all of the way. And then the man says to him, let me go. Day is breaking, but Jacob is clinging to the man and won't let him go. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And so the man asks him this very fateful question, what is your name? Now that's not because this man doesn't know his name, it's because this man does know his name. There's some beautiful storytelling going on here, all of it pointing to Jacob's name. First of all, you may have noticed earlier that Jacob is on the the Jabbok River. Anybody notice that those look kind of similar when we were, oh, that kind of looks like Jacob's name, but the B comes first instead of at the end. Those words intentionally look very similar. And there's another similar word in there. The word for wrestle in the original language sounds very similar to those two words. Sounds like the word for Jacob or the river Jabbok. And so you might say that this man has Jacob to Jacob by wrestling Jacob. Or you might even say that Jacob got Jacob at the J-book, right? Yeah, so it's a little tongue twister like that. They're putting that in there to make the story more beautiful and to point to the importance of Jacob's name. Now, this man is asking Jacob what his name is. So we've got a sense that this is the high point in the story right here. What is Jacob's name? It means heel grabber, right? Trickster. Because for his whole life, he has grabbed people by the heels to get them to do what he wants them to do. He came out of the womb right after his twin brother Esau, grabbing Esau's heel. And then he grabbed Esau by the heel later and scammed him into giving him his birthright. And then he grabbed his father by the heel and tricked his father into giving him the inheritance. And then he went and lived with this guy named Laban where they're both grabbing each other's heels and messing each other up all the time. His whole life, he's grabbed people by the heels. He has tricked them, deceived them, scammed them, whatever he's got to do. And he won't let them go until he gets what he wants out of them. So imagine the scene. Here he is grabbed a hold of this man, right? And he won't let him go 
And he says, I'm not letting you go until you give me what I want, until you bless me. So there he is, the man trying to get away. He's holding on to him with all his might. I will not let you go. I am grabbed a hold of you. I won't let you go until you give me what I want and bless me. And the man says, what's your name? He says, my, my name is Heel Grabber. I grab people by the heels until they give me what I want like I'm doing right now. So in that question, this man has brought up Jacob's entire past, his character, even who he is, and thrown it back in his face. Who are you? I'm a heel grabber, like I'm doing right now. That's why the next words are so important. No longer shall you be called Jacob. He says, I'm a heel grabber. It's what I do. I get people to do what I want by grabbing them. And the Lord says, that's not who you're going to be anymore. That's where we get to our first point today about our identity as God's people. Who are we as God's people? We aren't who we used to be. And that is a major thing about us. Everybody in this room who follows Jesus, we used to be something. A thief, a a liar, a ladies' man, a trans woman, bi. We all used to be something. And the Lord has said to each of us, no longer is that who you are. When I was a kid, before I received Jesus, I was a really good church kid. And that meant that I grew up in a church that wasn't all that different from ours. It was a Methodist church, but it felt a lot like ours with the songs and the Sunday school and all of those things. And I learned really quickly that if I said the right answers in Sunday school and showed everybody how smart I was, and if I acted outwardly like a good kid, that all the teachers in my life and the pastor in my life and my family and everybody would be so proud of me and they would be so nice to me and they would treat me like I was not like those other kids, like I wasn't like those bad kids because I acted good and because I knew the answers in Sunday school. And that worked for much of my childhood. That was how I found much affirmation and much who I was through, the, through my childhood. And then as I became a teenager, uh, I became really aware that though I could fake it on the outside, on the inside, there was much darkness, anger, bitterness, impure thoughts. And what became really evident was that nobody saw any of those. And so I could just keep acting like a good kid and giving the right answers and convince everyone around me and even convince myself that I was better than the bad kids because I acted good outwardly. That's who I was. And when Jesus came to me, when Jesus found me, what he said was, that's not who you are anymore. You're not somebody who hides the sin in his heart. You're not somebody who denies the sin in his heart. You're not somebody who identifies with how righteous you think you are. You're someone who knows you're a sinner. And for many of us, that is the step we have to take before we can come to Jesus. You have to admit that you're as bad as the bad kids 
before you can receive forgiveness for that sin that you must admit is there in the first place. A lot of people, I think, around us are like that, raised somewhat religious, act like a pretty good person on the outside. No one sees all of the darkness on the inside, so we can go about life think, people thinking that we're a good person. And the Lord looks to that, and he says, that's not where you're going to find your identity anymore. The word for that is self-righteousness, thinking I'm good because I'm better than the bad people. That's self-righteousness. The Lord says who you are now, if you're a Christian, is you are someone who knows and admits how dark you are on the inside, who knows those things you've done on the outside that other people hasn't seen, and look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. So that's how I'm not who I was anymore. I'm not a good church kid anymore. I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace because of Jesus Christ. Many of you can say the same thing about yourself. For others of us, What we used to be is wrapped up in these large identity-defining sins. Uh, There's a whole identity movement out there that, that identifies what we do with who we are. And so many of us will wrestle sometimes with having to let go of not just a sinful lifestyle, but a very identity. Uh, This is very hard for people that come from LGBT backgrounds. They hear the gospel, they see the goodness of Jesus sometimes, and then they hear the call to holiness, and they say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is who I am, right? And if that's you, I want you to know that the Lord does understand that. He does see that. And when you say, this is who I am, his words to his children are, not anymore, No, now you're a Christian. Now you are mine. This is one of the most important things about being a Christian, very simply, that we are not who we used to be. Part of coming to Jesus is shedding that old identity, that old lifestyle. Whether it's something big and flamboyant or whether it's something like just what I was, of a good church kid who hid his sins, sharing I'm sorry, shedding that lifestyle. You aren't who you used to be, and part of coming to him is shedding that identity. That's the first point today. Who are we, not who we used to be? Okay, back in verse 28, when the man takes away Jacob's old name, he also gives him a new one. He says, now your name is Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Now that's mysterious. Can you imagine the Egyptians asking the Israelites, who are you guys, Israelites? How did you get your name? Oh, uh, we got our name for uh, beating God in a wrestling match. What? Like he didn't just kill you? No, no, he, he struck us in the hip right here, and that's why we don't eat that part of the hip anymore. But no, uh, we, we wrestled with him, and we won, and he blessed us. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how that went down. Anybody sense that that's just not how that should have gone down, right? Is, is that just very different from what any of us expect? But that is how they got their name. He strove with Esau and Isaac, and he got a blessing there. He strove with God, and he got a blessing there as well. Jacob should have been, the moment the man pounced on him, should have just been a splat on the shores of the Jabbok, right? That's, that's how this should have gone. But so mysteriously, 
God was willing to empty himself into human form that could be overpowered by Jacob, a man that was an even match and in the end was overpowered by Jacob. And if that makes you a little uncomfortable because that doesn't seem right, you're on to something. That, that is part of the point here. Jacob should have lost handedly and been destroyed immediately, but instead he was blessed. So Jacob asks for the man's name, and the man won't give it. This is a sign of the other man's superiority over him, right? I know your name. You don't get to hear my name. And then the man blesses Jacob, which is another sign of his superiority. The superior always blesses the one under him. That's how those blessings work. Jacob names the place Peniel, and he's amazed by what God told him. I have seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. He walks away with a limp for the rest of his life to remember it by. And his descendants don't eat that part of the animal to remember that also. In God's words, you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. And in Jacob's words, I have seen the face of God and my life has been delivered. We see the wonder that Jacob really ought to be dead. He never should have survived even a moment of that wrestling match. And that's where we get the other point, the second point today. Who are we? We're a people who are blessed by God when we should have been destroyed by God. We're a people blessed by God when we should have been destroyed by God. So Jacob should have been a splatter on the rocks of the J-book, but instead he lived on blessed by God and man. And that is because... God chose to take on human form for a moment, chose to be overpowered by Jacob, and chose to bless him when he should have destroyed him. In the very same way, God would again take on human form in the man named Jesus. Only this time, he would be fully incarnate, fully God and fully man at the same time. God actually becoming man, and he would come not to meet with Jacob, but to meet with the sons of Jacob, spending his years walking among them, dwelling among them, ministering to them, showing his power at times, just like he had by touching Jacob's hip, but most of the time just living in that body as a man who gets sick and stubs his toe like everybody else, and just like Jacob, the sons of Jacob had a quarrel with him, had a strive with him, they strove together. The Pharisees would rise up and would argue with him, and his visit to his people turned into a wrestling match with the Jewish leaders. And the really amazing thing here is he let himself be overpowered by them as well. No one should have argued with Jesus or pulled political schemes against Jesus and and won, but the Lord chooses to lose that battle anyway, and he chooses to let a Roman guard overpower him physically and nail him to a cross. And he even says, I could call down legions of angels right now, like I could just destroy everybody who is doing this to me, but instead he allows himself to be overpowered. Now, if you sense the wrongness in God coming down as a man and being overpowered by Jacob there, sense the same wrongness here as well. God became man, walked on the earth, 
and allowed himself to be overpowered by his own people. Now, why did he do it? The same reason that he let Jacob do it, to bless them. He became man and was overpowered by his people in order to bless them. Christian, part of why Jesus came and let himself be overpowered by the sons of Jacob was to bless you. You too should be a splatter on the rocks of the Jabbok. But the Lord chose to let himself be overpowered so that we could say together, we should be dead. We should be judged by now. But in Christ Jesus, we have seen God and our lives have been delivered. Christian, that is who you are now. Someone who has seen God and your life has been delivered. If you're not a Christian, but you're considering coming to Jesus, this is part of the change that he is offering. Much of what happened to Jacob will happen to you one day. There he was all alone, all of his possessions and all of his people gone, and suddenly God met with him. In the very same way, probably at a time that you do not expect, suddenly all your possessions will be gone, all of your people will be gone, and it will be just you and God together. You're going to say, I thought I was just driving home from the store. I didn't realize my life was about to end and I was going to meet with God, right? I thought I was just going to bed like every other night as a healthy person. I didn't realize all these health problems I had and I was going home to meet with God. It may be just as much of a surprise as it was for Jacob. Jacob. Just like with him, you won't be able to take your possessions with you. You won't be able to take your people with you. It'll be you and God meeting. And what I want you to know is that in that meeting, as things stand right now, you go to him as an opponent like Jacob, one whom God will pounce on and strive with, one who has a quarrel with God. As he says to you, I made my world marvelous. And you had everything you needed to know that I was worthy of your worship and you refused to offer it to me. As he said, I set in your heart a sense that you ought to do the right thing. And yet there were so many points in your life when you did what even you knew was wrong. So we've chosen to rebel against him. And so when we go to meet him, we go to meet him as an opponent, as someone who is going to strive with him. And the way that ought to go is splatter on the rocks of the Jabbok, right? You don't quarrel with God. You don't strive with God. As it stands now, that's the way things are. But Jesus did come down to earth. God did come, and he was made man, and he did live, and he did die to pay for the sins of his people. And so if you would be a part of him, if you would take an interest in him, and I mean a literal interest, not be interested in, if you would look to him in faith and say, I trust you, will you secure me forgiveness for my sins? You, like the rest of God's people, can say, I should have been destroyed, but instead... I'm blessed. That's the offer that our Lord makes to you even now as you hear this message. If you aren't willing to receive Jesus, 
I do want you to at least know who we are, because I wouldn't want you to drive by and see our church sign and think some of those things people think, oh, there are those people who don't play cards, right? Like every Hoosier, we play euchre. That's what we do, right? That's, that's who we are, right? I wouldn't want you to drive by and think, oh, those are those people that force their wives to wear long skirts, or all these silly little stereotypes we have about us. If you want to know who we are, one thing that it's fair to think as you drive by and to think about the people that meet here is those people ought to be dead by now. That's true. Every last one of us will agree with that. These people, all of us, should have been wiped out a long time ago. And yet, God has chosen to bless us. So even as you drive by, if you don't want to take part in our blessings, if you ever do come here, the Lord will receive you immediately. But even if you won't take part in them, no, those people, they are blessed when they should have been destroyed. Christians, let's look at Jacob's awe in his voice in verse 30. He called the name of the place Peniel, and later when it says Penuel, it's just a different pronunciation of the same place. And what he says is, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. You see how amazed he is by this. He doesn't just know it. He's thrilled by it. And I want to ask Christian, does that amaze you like it amazed the limping Jacob here? Do you walk away from Sunday worship with a limp in your heart that says, I just met with God. How am I still alive? Do you walk away from your morning quiet times after reading the Bible and say, I just heard from God and my life has been spared? Do we sing the songs we sing on Sunday morning and say, we are in this moment singing to the God of the universe and it's not killing us. We are a people who should have been destroyed but have been blessed. Some of us know this, but we aren't amazed by it. If that's you, seek awe in your heart. Seek awe when you read your Bible. Seek awe when you sing the song. Seek awe when you're sitting at Bible study with people talking about the very holy words of God. Seek awe every time you see the sun come up again. For we are a people who have met with God and our lives have been delivered. Recently, I was texting with a family member and uh, they sent to me a picture of the sunset where they were. And it was one of those sunsets that was like good enough to take a picture of and send to somebody you care about. And I looked at it and I can't remember if I said wow or I gave it the exclamation point or I did something to be like, oh man, that's amazing. And my family member said something to me that has stuck with me uh, ever since then. Uh, they said, another day where God didn't burn it all down. Another day where God didn't burn it all down. He just lets the world continue going around. He spins the world around one more time with all of our corruptions and all of our oppressions of each other and all of our rebellion against him. And he says, I'm going to spin that around one more time and give just a few more people a chance to come into my kingdom and receive forgiveness. The truth is, 
he should have burnt it all down the day before I came to Christ. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. He should have burnt it all down the day before you came to Christ. And there would be no wrong in his heart if that is what he had done. But he said, I'm going to spin it around one more time. And I'm going to give that person a chance to come into my kingdom and receive forgiveness. Now, for some of you, that day might be today. You may have spun it around one more time just so you could be here today and hear the gospel and come in and receive his forgiveness. But the day will come when he does burn it all down. He's flooded the whole thing once, and he will come in glory and fire again. And it says the heavenly bodies even will melt as they burn. He'll be perfectly just when he does that. And we will say in that day that we should have been destroyed, but we were blessed. Now, my invitation to you, if you're not a believer, is to come into his kingdom, become a part of his people through faith in Jesus Christ, and be blessed when you should have been destroyed. And my word to you, church Christians, we are a people who should have been destroyed, but are blessed. And so let's never forget it. Let's pray together.